Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft Narrated by Ian Gordon The essential salts of animals may be so prepared and preserved that an ingenious man may have the whole Ark of Noah in his own study, and raise the fine shape of an animal out of its ashes at his pleasure. And by the Ike method from the essential salts of humane dust, a philosopher may, without any criminal necromancy, call up the shape of any dead ancestor from the dust whereinto his body has been incinerated. Borellus. 1. A Result and a Prologue 1. From a private hospital for the insane near Providence, Rhode Island, there recently disappeared an exceedingly singular person. He bore the name of Charles Dexter Ward, and was placed under restraint most reluctantly by the grieving father, who had watched his aberration grow from a mere eccentricity to a dark mania involving both the possibility of murderous tendencies, and a profound and peculiar change in the apparent contents of his mind. Doctors confessed themselves quite baffled by his case, since it presented oddities of a general physiological as well as psychological character. In the first place, the patient seemed oddly older than his twenty-six years would warrant. Mental disturbance, it is true, will age one rapidly, but the face of this young man had taken on a subtle cast, which only the very aged normally acquire. In the second place, his organic processes shewed a certain queerness of proportion, which nothing in medical experience can parallel. Respiration and heart action had a baffling lack of symmetry. The voice was lost, so that no sounds above a whisper were possible. Digestion was incredibly prolonged and minimized, and neural reactions to standard stimuli bore no relation at all to anything heretofore recorded, either normal or pathological. The skin had a morbid chill and dryness, and the cellular structure of the tissue seemed exaggeratedly coarse and loosely knit. Even a large olive birthmark on the right hip had disappeared, whilst there had formed on the chest a very peculiar mole, or blackish spot of which no trace existed before. In general, all physicians agree that in Ward the processes of metabolism had become retarded to a degree beyond precedent. Psychologically, too, Charles Ward was unique. His madness held no affinity to any sort recorded in even the latest and most exhaustive of treatises, and was conjoined to a mental force which would have made him a genius or a leader had it not been twisted into strange and grotesque forms. Dr. Willett, who was Ward's family physician, affirms that the patient's gross mental capacity, as gauged by his response to matters outside the sphere of his insanity, had actually increased since the seizure. Ward, it is true, was always a scholar and an antiquarian, but even his most brilliant early work did not shew the prodigious grasp and insight displayed during his last examinations by the alienists. It was, indeed, a difficult matter to obtain a legal commitment to the hospital, so powerful and lucid did the youth's mind seem, and only on the evidence of others, and on the strength of many abnormal gaps in his stock of information, as distinguished from his intelligence, was he finally placed in confinement. 
to the very moment of his vanishment. He was an omnivorous reader, and as great a conversationalist as his poor voice permitted, and shrewd observers, failing to foresee his escape, freely predicted that he would not be long in gaining his discharge from custody. Only Dr. Willett, who brought Charles Ward into the world and had watched his growth of body and mind ever since, seemed frightened at the thought of his future freedom. He had had a terrible experience, and had made a terrible discovery which he dared not reveal to his sceptical colleagues. Willett, indeed, presents a minor mystery all his own in his connection with the case. He was the last to see the patient before his flight, and emerged from that final conversation in a state of mixed horror and relief, which several recalled when Ward's escape became known three hours later. That escape itself is one of the unsolved wonders of Dr. Waite's hospital. A window open above a sheer drop of sixty feet could hardly explain it, yet after that talk with Willett, the youth was undeniably gone. Willett himself has no public explanations to offer, though he seems strangely easier in mind than before the escape. Many, indeed, feel that he would like to say more, if he thought any considerable number would believe him. He had found Ward in his room, but shortly after his departure the attendants knocked in vain. When they opened the door, the patient was not there, and all they found was the open window, with a chill April breeze blowing in a cloud of fine bluish-gray dust that almost choked them. True, the dogs howled some time before, but that was while Willett was still present, and they had caught nothing and shewn no disturbance later on. Ward's father was told at once over the telephone, but he seemed more saddened than surprised. By the time Dr. Wade called in person, Dr. Willett had been talking with him, and both disavowed any knowledge or complicity in the escape. Only from certain closely confidential friends of Willett and the senior ward have any clues been gained, and even these are too wildly fantastic for general credence. The one fact which remains is that up to the present time no trace of the missing madman has been unearthed. Charles Ward was an antiquarian from infancy, no doubt gaining his taste from the venerable town around him, and from the relics of the past which filled every corner of his parents' old mansion in Prospect Street on the crest of the hill. With the years his devotion to ancient things increased, so that history, genealogy, and the study of colonial architecture, furniture, and craftsmanship at length crowded everything else from his sphere of interests. These tastes are important to remember in considering his madness, for although they do not form its absolute nucleus, they play a prominent part in its superficial form. The gaps of information which the alienists noticed were all related to modern matters, and were invariably offset by a correspondingly excessive, though outwardly concealed, knowledge of bygone matters, as brought out by adroit questioning, so that one would have fancied the patient literally transferred to a former age, through some obscure sort of auto-hypnosis. The odd thing was that Ward seemed no longer interested in the antiquities he knew so well. He had, it appears, lost his regard for them through sheer familiarity, and all his final efforts were obviously bent toward mastering those common facts of the modern world, which had been so totally and unmistakably expunged from his brain. That this wholesale deletion had occurred, he did his best to hide, but it was clear to all who watched him that his whole program of reading and conversation was determined by a frantic wish to 
who imbibed such knowledge of his own life and of the ordinary practical and cultural background of the twentieth century as ought to have been his by virtue of his birth in 1902 and his education in the schools of our own time. Alienists are now wondering how, in view of his vitally impaired range of data, the escaped patient manages to cope with the complicated world of today the dominant opinion being that he is lying low in some humble and unexacting position till his stock of modern information can be brought up to the normal. The beginning of Ward's madness is a matter of dispute among alienists. Dr. Lyman, the eminent Boston authority, places it in 1919 or 1920, during the boy's last year at the Moses Brown School, when he suddenly turned from the study of the past to the study of the occult, and refused to qualify for college on the ground that he had individual researches of much greater importance to make. This is certainly borne out by Ward's altered habits at the time, especially by his continual search through town records and among old burying grounds for a certain grave dug in 1771, the grave of an ancestor named Joseph Kerwin, some of whose papers he professed to have found behind the panelling of a very old house in Olney Court, on Stampers Hill, which Kerwin was known to have built and occupied. It is, broadly speaking, undeniable that the winter of 1919-20 saw a great change in Ward, whereby he abruptly stopped his general antiquarian pursuits, and embarked on a desperate delving into occult subjects, both at home and abroad, varied only by this strangely persistent search for his forefather's grave. From this opinion, however, Dr. Willett substantially dissents, basing his verdict on his close and continuous knowledge of the patient, and on certain frightful investigations and discoveries which he made toward the last. Those investigations and discoveries have left their mark upon him, so that his voice trembles when he tells them, and his hand trembles when he tries to write of them. Willett admits that the change of 1919-20 would ordinarily appear to mark the beginning of a progressive decadence, which culminated in the horrible and uncanny alienation of 1928, but believes, from personal observation, that a finer distinction must be made. Granting freely that the boy was always ill-balanced temperamentally, and prone to be unduly susceptible and enthusiastic in his responses to phenomena around him, he refuses to concede that the early alteration marked the actual passage from sanity to madness, crediting instead Ward's own statement that he had discovered or rediscovered something whose effect on human thought was likely to be marvellous and profound. The true madness, he is certain, came with a later change, after the Kerwin portrait in the ancient papers had been unearthed, after a trip to strange foreign places had been made, and some terrible invocations chanted under strange and secret circumstances, after certain answers to these invocations had been plainly indicated, and a frantic letter penned under agonizing and inexplicable conditions, after the wave of vampirism and the ominous portuxet gossip, and after the patient's memory commenced to exclude contemporary images, whilst his voice failed, and his physical aspect underwent the subtle modification so many subsequently noticed. It was only about this time, Willett points out with much acuteness, that the nightmare qualities became indubitably linked with Ward, and the doctor feels shudderingly sure that enough solid evidence exists to sustain the youth's claim regarding his crucial discovery. In the first place, 
two workmen of high intelligence saw Joseph Cohen's ancient papers found. Secondly, the boy once shooed Dr. Willett those papers and a page of the Cohen diary, and each of the documents had every appearance of genuineness. The hole where Ward claimed to have found them was long of visible reality, and Willett had a very convincing final glimpse of them, in surroundings which can scarcely be believed, and can never perhaps be proved. Then there were the mysteries and coincidences of the Orne and Hutchinson letters, and the problem of the Cohen penmanship, and of what the detectives brought to light about Dr. Allen— these things, and the terrible message in medieval minuscules found in Willett's pocket when he gained consciousness after his shocking experience. And most conclusive of all, there are the two hideous results which the doctor obtained from a certain pair of formulae during his final investigations, results which virtually prove the authenticity of the papers and of their monstrous implications at the same time that those papers were born forever from human knowledge. 2. One must look back at Charles Ward's earlier life as at something belonging as much to the past as the antiquities he loved so keenly. In the autumn of 1918, and with a considerable show of zest in the military training of the period, he had begun his junior year at the Moses Brown School, which lies very near his home. The old main building, erected in 1819, had always charmed his youthful antiquarian sense, and the spacious park in which the academy is set appealed to his sharp eye for landscape. His social activities were few, and his hours were spent mainly at home, in rambling walks, in his classes and drills, and in pursuit of antiquarian and genealogical data at the city hall, the state house, the public library, the Athenaeum, the Historical Society, the John Carter Brown and John Hay Libraries of Brown University, and the newly opened Shepley Library in Benefit Street. One may picture him yet as he was in those days, tall, slim, and blonde, with studious eyes and a slight stoop, dressed somewhat carelessly, and giving a dominant impression of harmless awkwardness rather than attractiveness. His walks were always adventures in antiquity— during which he managed to recapture from the myriad relics of a glamorous old city a vivid and connected picture of the centuries before. His home was a great Georgian mansion, atop the well-nigh precipitous hill that rises just east of the river, and from the rear windows of its rambling wings he could look dizzily out over all the clustered spires, domes, roofs, and skyscraper summits of the lower town to the purple hills of the countryside beyond. Here he was born— and from the lovely classic porch of the double-bayed brick façade his nurse had first wheeled him in his carriage, past the little white farmhouse of two hundred years before that the town had long ago overtaken, and on toward the stately colleges along the shady, sumptuous street, whose old square brick mansions and smaller wooden houses, with narrow, heavy-columned Doric porches, dreamed solid and exclusive amidst their generous yards and gardens. He had been wheeled, too, along sleepy Congdon Street, one tier lower down on the steep hill, and with all its eastern homes on high terraces. The small wooden houses averaged a greater age here, for it was up this hill that the growing town had climbed, and in these rides he had imbibed something of the colour of a quaint colonial village. The nurse used to stop and sit on the benches of Prospect Terrace to chat with policemen, 
and one of the child's first memories was of the great westward sea of hazy roofs and domes and steeples and far hills which he saw one winter afternoon from that great railed embankment, all violet and mystic against a fevered, apocalyptic sunset of reds and golds and purples and curious greens. The vast marble dome of the State House stood out in massive silhouette, its crowning statue haloed fantastically by a break in one of the tinted stratus clouds that barred the flaming sky. When he was larger, his famous walks began, first with his impatiently dragged nurse, and then alone in dreamy meditation. Farther and farther down that almost perpendicular hill he would venture, each time reaching older and quainter levels of the ancient city. He would hesitate gingerly down vertical Jenk Street, with its bank walls and colonial gables, to the shady Benefit Street corner, where before him was a wooden antique with an ionic pilastered pair of doorways, and beside him a prehistoric gambrel roofer, with a bit of primal farmyard remaining, and the great Judge Durfee house, with its fallen vestiges of Georgian grandeur. It was getting to be a slum here, but the Titan Elms cast a restoring shadow over the place, and the boy used to stroll south past the long lines of the pre-revolutionary homes, with their great central chimneys and classic portals. On the eastern side, they were set high over basements, with railed double flights of stone steps, and the young Charles could picture them as they were when the street was new, and red heels and periwigs set off the painted pediments whose signs of wear were now becoming so visible. Westward, the hill dropped almost as steeply as above, down to the old town street that the founders had laid out at the river's edge in 1636. Here ran innumerable little lanes, with leaning, huddled houses of immense antiquity, and fascinated though he was, it was long before he dared to thread their archaic verticality, for fear they would turn out a dream or a gateway to unknown terrors. He found it much less formidable to continue along Benefit Street, past the iron fence of St. John's Hidden Churchyard, and the rear of the 1761 Colony House, and the mouldering bulk of the Golden Ball Inn, where Washington stopped. At Meeting Street, the successive Jail Lane and King Street of other periods, he would look upward to the east, and see the arched flight of steps, to which the highway had to resort in climbing the slope, and downward to the west glimpsing the old brick colonial schoolhouse that smiles across the road at the ancient sign of Shakespeare's head, where the Providence Gazette and Country Journal was printed before the Revolution. Then came the exquisite First Baptist Church of 1775, luxurious with its matchless Gibbs steeple and the Georgian roofs and cupolas hovering by. Here and to the southward the neighborhood became better, flowering at last into a marvellous group of early mansions. But still, the little ancient lanes led off down the precipice to the west, spectral in their many-gabled archaism, and dipping to a riot of iridescent decay, where the wicked old waterfront recalls its proud East India days, amidst polyglot vice and squalor, rotting wharves, and blear-eyed ship-chandleries, with such surviving alley names as Packet, Bullion, Gold, silver, coin, doubloon, sovereign, gilder, dollar, dime, and cent. Sometimes, as he grew taller and more adventurous, young Ward would venture down into this maelstrom of tottering houses, 
broken transoms, tumbling steps, twisted balustrades, swarthy faces, and nameless odors, winding from South Main to South Water, searching out the docks where the bay and sound steamers still touched, and returning northward at this lower level past the steep-roofed 1816 warehouses and the broad square at the Great Bridge, where the 1773 Market House still stands firm on its ancient arches. In that square he would pause to drink in the bewildering beauty of the old town as it rises on its eastward bluff, decked with its two Georgian spires, and crowned by the vast new Christian science dome, as London is crowned by St. Paul's. He liked mostly to reach this point in the late afternoon, when the slanting sunlight touches the market-house and the ancient hill-roofs and belfries with gold, and throws magic around the dreaming wharves where Providence Indiamen used to ride at anchor. After a long look, he would grow almost dizzy with a poet's love for the sight, and then he would scale the slope homeward in the dusk, past the old white church and up the narrow, precipitous ways where yellow gleams would begin to peep out in small-paned windows, and through fanlights set high over double flights of steps with curious wrought-iron railings. At other times, and in later years, he would seek for vivid contrasts, spending half a week in the crumbling colonial regions northwest of his home, where the hill drops to the lower eminence of Stampers Hill, with its ghetto and negro quarter clustering round the place where the Boston stagecoach used to start before the Revolution, and the other half in the gracious southerly realm about George, Benevolent, Power, and Williams Streets, where the old slope holds unchanged the fine estates and bits of walled garden and steep green lane in which so many fragrant memories linger. These rambles, together with the diligent studies which accompanied them, certainly account for a large amount of the antiquarian lore, which at last crowded the modern world from Charles Ward's mind, and illustrate the mental soil upon which fell, in that fateful winter of 1919-20, the seeds that came to such strange and terrible fruition. Dr. Willett is certain that, up to this ill-omened winter of first change, Charles Ward's antiquarianism was free from every trace of the morbid. Graveyards held for him no particular attraction, beyond their quaintness and historic value, and of anything like violence or savage instinct, he was utterly devoid. Then, by insidious degrees, there appeared to develop a curious sequel to one of his genealogical triumphs of the year before, when he had discovered among his maternal ancestors a certain very long-lived man named Joseph Kerwin, who had come from Salem in March of 1692, and about whom a whispered series of highly peculiar and disquieting stories clustered. Ward's great-great-grandfather, Welcome Potter, had, in 1785, married a certain Anne Tillinghast, daughter of Mrs. Eliza, daughter to Captain James Tillinghast, of whose paternity the family had preserved no trace. Late in 1918, Whilst examining a volume of original town records in manuscript, the young genealogist encountered an entry describing a legal change of name, 
by which, in 1772, a Mrs. Eliza Kerwin, widow of Joseph Kerwin, resumed, along with her seven-year-old daughter Anne, her maiden name of Tillingast, on the ground that her husband's name was become a public reproach by reason of what was known after his decease, the which confirming an ancient common rumour, though not to be credited by a loyal wife till so proven as to be wholly past doubting. This entry came to light upon the accidental separation of two leaves, which had been carefully pasted together, and treated as one by a laboured revision of the page-numbers. It was at once clear to Charles Ward that he had indeed discovered a hitherto unknown great-great-great-grandfather. The discovery doubly excited him, because he had already heard vague reports, and seen scattered allusions relating to this person, about whom there remained so few publicly available records, aside from those becoming public only in modern times, that it almost seemed as if a conspiracy had existed to blot him from memory. What did appear, moreover, was of such a singular and provocative nature, that one could not fail to imagine curiously, what it was that the colonial recorders were so anxious to conceal and forget, or to suspect that the deletion had reasons all too valid. Before this, Ward had been content to let his romancing about old Joseph Kerwin remain in the idle stage, but having discovered his own relationship to this apparently hushed-up character, he proceeded to hunt out as systematically as possible whatever he might find concerning him. In this excited quest, he eventually succeeded beyond his highest expectations, for old letters, diaries, and sheaves of unpublished memoirs, in cobwebbed providence, garrets, and elsewhere, yielded many illuminating passages, which their writers had not thought it worth their while to destroy. One important sidelight came from a point as remote as New York, where some Rhode Island colonial correspondence was stored in the museum at France's tavern. The really crucial thing, though, and what in Dr. Willett's opinion formed the definite source of Ward's undoing, was the matter found in August 1919 behind the panelling of the crumbling house in Olney Court. It was that, beyond a doubt, which opened up those black vistas, whose end was deeper than the pit.